Listeners, and welcome to Weird Era, the literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Alex here, so pleased to be back for season six of our podcast, and even more pleased that I get to talk to Marie-Helene Bettino today about her latest novel, Beautyland. Marie-Helene is the author of the novels Parakeet, New York Times Editor's Choice, and 2AM at the Cat's Pajamas, one of NPR's best books of 2014, and the short story collection Safe as Houses. Her fourth book, the novel Beautyland, was published in January 2024 by FSG. Once while playing volleyball, she went chasing after the ball, fell down a hill, and crashed into a beehive. She was stung multiple times, but finished the game. For her perseverance, she was awarded Camper of the Year. This was leadership camp, where they teach you to get 10 people from one end of a field to another without touching the ground, using only a chair and a 2 by 4 About Beautyland. At the moment when Voyager 1 is launched into space carrying its famous golden record, a baby of unusual perception is born to a single mother in Philadelphia. As a child, Adina Giorno recognizes that she is different. She also possesses knowledge of a faraway planet. The arrival of a fax machine enables her to contact her extraterrestrial relatives, beings who have sent her to report on the oddities of Earthlings. As she moves through the world and makes a life for herself among humans, she dispatches transmissions on the terrors and surprising joys of their existence. But at a precarious moment, a beloved friend urges Adina to share her messages with the world. Is there a chance she's not alone? Marie-Helene Bertino's Beautyland is a novel of startling originality about the fragility and resilience of life on our Earth and in our universe. It's a remarkable evocation of the feeling of being in exile at home, and it introduces a gentle, unforgettable alien for our times. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me. All of what you just read is true. (laughs) I love that. I also really loved Beautyland so much. Um, It's such a beautiful exploration of the kind of mundanity of the human experience. Uh, But I did find it really lovely that so much time and attention was spent on Adina's youth. Uh, Why did you think it was important to focus on this character's early childhood experience when so many books wouldn't? And I guess the big question here is, what interests you in writing about youth while not necessarily writing about innocence? Hmm, Those are all very good questions. It puts me in the mind of the book Prayer for Owen Mimi and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, in that a lot of who the artist grows into exists in the child. And I think especially because Adina's entire story is about learning human beings, learning about earth life, learning about animals and how we do what we do on this planet, I thought it was utterly crucial to show her when she was a a literal newcomer, not just to being a human, but to this planet. And so I focused a lot on her early education, her developmental education, where she was not only in, in human school in Philadelphia, but in what she refers to as the night classroom, 
which is when she falls asleep and, and finds herself in this glowing, luminous classroom um, helmed by this singular plural figure that she calls Solomon, who instructs her on what she couldn't possibly know in her human life. So in many ways, these night classes supplement her, her earth learning. And I just think that it was so important to see her as this sensitive, newly hatched alien slash child on the earth. So I am a big uh, genre reader. I'm a big science fiction fan. Um, I love a good world build. Um, Obviously, there's, you know, a big science fiction element to the story in its framing and in its content. uh, But the writing itself is so literary and rich. I'm curious about your thoughts about writing literary sci-fi and how it differs from writing, you know, literary fiction or, or straight science fiction. I also grew up loving science fiction and fantasy specifically. And I will share with you, Alex, that one of the biggest surprises and delights about Beautyland launching into the world, and it's only been two weeks, has been how it has been so far really embraced by genre readers and genre writers and the science fiction community. Um, It was reviewed in Locus magazine which is like a straight sci-fi magazine. And I was so over the moon thrilled because those readers are really discerning. Like I would not mess with sci-fi people ever. And I have a great deal of respect around that genre. And I, I'm a professor of speculative fiction, which is a little bit different. But I come to breaking the laws of physics on the page very honestly. And I come to it with a lot of respect. Um, And understanding that there are certain parameters and archetypes that you're automatically in conversation with when you write outside the realm of realism. And and so far, that's been my career study. And it's been so much fun to not only discover how to do it myself, but to pass it along to a whole host of undergraduates and overgraduates who really want to write that way too. You know, speculative and the liminal space between literary fiction and sci-fi is a really hopping hot place right now. And it's been really exciting to kind of see, to kind of take it out for a ride and see what it can do. And how does it, it, do you find there's a stark difference between writing normal fiction and, and writing within the genre? I do. And I don't. So Breaking the Laws of Physics on the page doubly charges you to write stories that can work on both the literal and the metaphorical planes. So for example, if you're going to put a supernatural element into a story, I have found, and this is just my working definition, that it works best when it's meaningfully and intrinsically connected to something wildly important in the interior of your main character. So hooked to their desire, in other words. And so just throwing in a supernatural element just just for fun or just as a gimmick normally doesn't work. It kind of like lands on top of the story. And so to implicate the element, it normally has to be hooked to a character's deep, deep longing or desire. So for example, in Beautyland, the fact that she believes herself to be an extraterrestrial 
is meaningfully connected to her desire to connect to other human beings and for most of her life, her incapacity to do so. And if that, if you could have taken out her extraterrestrialness and have the novel still make sense, I wouldn't have done my job. So that's the, that's the specific responsibility that I, I believe that speculative sci-fi fantasy has or, or can have. Um, but even though you break the laws of physics, I think that you're still required to obey the laws of fiction. And so I think like <laughs> your characters still have to be deep. I, I think that um, your characters are still charged to have longings and desires and idiosyncrasies and flaws and mistakes. They're not, they shouldn't just be there, I think, to serve the supernatural premise. They should also be richly developed and deeply wrought characters in their own right, whether they, whatever story they happen to fall in. How do you think science fiction and spiritual texts share space? I would never, ever purport to be an expert on science fiction. And I'm definitely nowhere near an expert on religious texts, <laughs> though I have gone to, I did attend quite a bit of uh, Catholic school. Um, science fiction texts and religious texts. Well, I, I can say, I can speak personally that mm -hmm. I think having an extraterrestrial in a story automatically kind of holds hands with the wish for a greater power, something else out there that one may connect to, something that, holds, that, that, that perhaps gives us hope that even though we've ruined this planet completely, that there might be a benevolent force out there that might take pity on us. And so there's a section in Beautyland, one of her transmissions that she writes about human beings is about the song Amazing Grace, which she says is about, um, is, is one of the only songs um, that is used by all types of religious folks, but doesn't have a particular alliance to any one religion. It's about being human. It's about believing oneself to be a wreck. And it's about still deserving grace. And I think that Beautyland to me is a faith-shaped novel in that it changes, it, ch it changes um, proportionate to the shape of your faith. So if you believe in Adina, you will read the novel one way. If you don't, you will, you will read the novel in a different way. So I was very much in dialogue with faith and spirituality as I was writing it. There's a quote before the end of uh, the massive star section of Beautyland that I want to highlight. Uh, quote, it must be human empathy that compels Adina to cheer her friend who received the scholarship she wanted, though she didn't learn that on Earth. Do you think empathy is a quality we're born with or is something we can only learn with experience? Oh, would that I were enlightened enough to know that for everyone. I mean, I, I imagine it, it depends on the person. I do think that if you're willing to work on something, you can always cultivate a trait like empathy. You first have to be able to see it. You then have to be able to admit that you don't have it or you don't have a lot of it. And then you have to be willing to work on it. 
so many factors would have to be at play to develop it, but I think that it is possible. And as far as being born with empathy, I think, I mean, I've seen many families where empathy is very much at the dinner table, so to speak. And, you know, children are being raised with this deep understanding that there are other people in the world with whom they should share space in a spirit of generosity. So I don't know. I think, I think maybe a little of both. Of course, I would love to ask you what you think, or if you have an opinion on that, maybe you know more than I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think I would categorize myself as a pretty deeply empathetic person, but I think that also comes from a life of readership. Um, mm. I really think reading and, and kind of having that experience throughout my life has made me into a more empathetic person. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely something that reading teaches you if 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 you're reading well, maybe I would add. I completely agree with that. And reading is yes, when when you're let's say when you're um, actively reading, your 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 empathy <laughs> switches is on one would hope. And growing up, I and I would imagine if I I wouldn't be surprised if this were true for you as well. I was a voracious reader. And one of the re- one of the reasons I loved to read is to know how other people lived, because I did come mm-hmm. from such a cloistered, sheltered environment, strictly Roman Catholic, um, very, very uh, sheltered and, and protected. And the only way I could find out how other people were doing it was to read. And until I was able to make my own decisions and and until, honestly, I started theater at age 13. I had to read mm. to know how other people did things and it was and it opens you it it mm-hmm. opens you and it allows you to understand that there are all sorts of valid ways of of living on the earth I I think I would also just add Beautyland just you know totally destroyed me and shattered me and sewed me back together again <sighs> um I I finished it at my work desk uh which was probably a bad idea because I own a bookstore and uh, I'm very public facing. So I, I, you know, I I sat at my desk uh, towards the end of the day and was literally just sobbing. Um, And, and I think that is because I am an empathetic person and I think Adina is as well. Mm -hmm. And I think you are as well to be able to write a character like Adina. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it really struck me in in an extremely visceral way. Oh, I'm very glad to hear that. And if it makes you feel any better, it destroyed me too. <laughs> it destroyed <laughs> me and it required me to stay open and bear witness to everything that she was encountering, even when all I wanted to do was look away and take the reader away from it. I felt to honor her and to be most responsible to her I had to, when I had that desire to turn away, become even more acutely observant to what she was going through. And, and, I, and obviously both of us are speaking euphemistically because there are things that happen at the end of this book that let's say are, are deeply profoundly um, important to her that change her and that are hard. 
And, but you were never going to have an entire lifespan of someone on the page without encountering some, you know, some deeply tender wounds um, and also ways of healing. But there was one section that comes right before the last stage um, that I feel like I had to write four books before I, I was able to write that scene and also go through um, end of life facilitation uh, certification to, mm-hmm. to be able to write a scene that, um, that honored that, that really profound experience she was having. My boyfriend was texting me and he was like, so how was your day? How was the book? Did you finish it? And I was like, I'm standing on the like metro platform right now and I can't talk about it because I'm going to start crying again. Can I ask? It was so real. Can I ask? So like, what, what was it? Like, what do you think it was? Like, what were you thinking when it was making you emotional? Um, I think I was just, you know, the novel encompasses her entire life, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it was really, and again, this is, this is what reading does. If, if you're doing it well, (laughs) is these, they're real, you know, these people are real. These characters are so real. And so it was really hard to kind of reckon with what she had experienced and the profound sadness that she had experienced but but she's still kind of accepting of it all. Mm-hmm. She's there there aren't really points where she I mean, there's one point I think that she says, you know, like I, I can't lose my best friend and my dog in the same week. And mm-hmm. the quote is, This is Adina bargaining, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that I think is mm-hmm. is maybe the only point where she kind of does that that she knows that it's unfair and she knows that it's sad and she but but yeah but there's an acceptance to it I think mm-hmm. and also just I, I <laughs> you know not to take away from this novel at all <laughs> I tend to cry at the end of a lot of books I read because it's saying goodbye uh-huh. to this mm-hmm. this story um and yeah. saying goodbye to Adina and her story I I found very difficult because I'd connected with her so much. Oh, but I know what you mean. Like, and it's even in the book, like the worst feeling when a television show has their final episode, I can watch a final episode of a show (laughs) I hate and I will still get emotional just because I'm like, these people are gone and I don't even like them, but they're gone. So it's not that you, 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 you miss them or you long for them. It's that it's something is over and that's sad and it is the end of every novel is a goodbye and that is always Mm -hmm. that always gets that always gets me too oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's a a big trend right now in fiction on having you know these really messy kind of morally questionable gray characters um adina i don't think i would put her in that category but she is flawed Uh, she makes mistakes but she doesn't really necessarily understand why or 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 how you know i'm thinking of her reunion with tony specifically when tony says it's not okay to hide from everybody and adina apologizes and tony says i'm sorry i should have made the invisible conversation visible why are friends like tony 
the real ones. Uh, Why can't some people forgive an absence from a friend and some can? That is the question. That is the question. I don't know. I have given up asking myself that and have just allowed the people who demand a certain participation from you. And if you, if you're unwilling or unable to give it to them, it's a non-negotiable for them. I've just allowed them to be, and I have just thanked my lucky stars for the chosen family in my life who allow me to show up as I am when I can, you know, and, and, and are just grateful to me for being me. And then what I'm very happy that I finally learned how to do is instead of wishing that those really rigid people were different, I instead ask myself, well, how can I be more accepting of the folks in my life? And, and, if the, and is there any rigidity in me that I'm maybe not looking at closely enough where I can, that I can relax so that I can be more open to someone who maybe needs, needs something different from me. And that takes the energy away from, you know, those really rigid people who maybe aren't ready for you and puts it in, into a form that I can actually do something about. So that's been nice, but why are there? I don't know. I'm sure I've been very rigid with people in my life too. And I've, I've wanted something specific that someone wasn't able to give me. Um, but thankfully that's, that's the hundred percent great thing about aging. You hopefully learn from some of that and you're able to say, okay, well, I've gotten that wrong five times out of five. Why don't I try it a different way and let that person be and just, you know, focus on, focus on the real, real, real ones. But that's the word for them, the real ones. And I don't know who taught them that. I had to learn, but God has blessed them. I'm so thankful and grateful for them. Early on in the supernova portion of Beautyland, Adina starts transcribing her childhood notes to Word documents. I just want to read a, a quote that really struck me. Was there ever a time when she thought retail stores had sales because they loved their customers? When she thought it was impossible to be unhappy while holding balloons? Blue betas, red glasses, the moon. Her past passions sound tinny when chinking against the jar of time. But they add up to a stack next to her elbow, a growing collection of desire and insight that might acquire significance if she trusts it will. I know this is going to be a big question, but I wrote it down in the margins next to this bit, so I'm going to ask it anyways. What do you think the meaning of life is, and did it change after writing Beautyland? <laughs> oh, that simple old question? Oh, absolutely. That of little, that that little, little just question. keeping it light and tight keeping over here light, at Weird Era. Light, light, <laughs> light and tight on a Monday morning. Wait, it's Tuesday. No, it's Monday. What day is it? Oh no, my it's God. Monday. The, the question should be, Marie, what day is it? Um, what is the meaning of life and did it change while you were writing this? Well, let me see how, if there's anything at all I can say that would be in any way worth listening to about the meaning of life. I mean, all I can really say is that I have noticed that there is something that feels very nutritious, like life done 
well and correctly when I am trying to give my best in the present moment to whomever I am with, including myself when I'm alone. Mm. And so one thing we learned in end of life facilitation is every single moment of your life is an opportunity to create meaning and experience joy. And I have taken that to heart. And I do notice that being present in the moment helps even present in the really tough moments. So what is the meaning of life? Well, I don't know that there necessarily is one because I began the book, and this is also answering your question. I began the book as kind of an agnostic and I ended the book still agnostic. I Though I do believe in extraterrestrials and life outside of our universe, to me that's like not even an arguable statement. It, it must mm-hmm. and absolutely does exist. Um, while I do believe in that, I, I don't necessarily believe that there is, like Carl Sagan said, a benevolent man sitting on any, an eternal rocking chair somewhere tallying the fall of every sparrow. And I do think that we are essentially alone and on our own. But I think that that's the good and bad news. I, but I focus on the good news. So every moment that we're alive is an opportunity to say to someone, hey, can I help? Or, hey, I'm sorry. Or thank you. Or I love you. I miss you. And we do our best. Um, all we can really do is our best in any given moment. So though I don't think that there's any particular meaning outside of the meaning we assign to life, I think that's pretty extraordinary and miraculous as it is. And it doesn't have to be Mm. more than that, at least for me. Thanks for that super easy question, Alex. (laughs) I haven't even had lunch yet. Good Lord. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I didn't realize I was going to have to have five cups of coffee for this conversation. (laughs) Okay, we can move into a more fun one now. Oh, what? Uh, Death? The meaning of death? What what are we going to talk about now? How to dissect an atom? (laughs) We're going to talk about New York City, baby. Okay, slightly less difficult. Give it to me. (laughs) So, once Adina moves to New York, you write, quote, She experiences an era of well-being and connection. This emboldens Adina to make the mistake countless writers before her have made. She attempts to write about New York City. I love how meta this statement is, as you yourself, at this part, start writing about New York City. Uh, A couple questions here. Why make the same mistake countless writers before you have made? And in your opinion, has any writer been successful in writing about New York City? The great questions. And can I just also say, man, you are a great reader. What a close, careful reader you are. Thank you for taking such care with this work. You're the first person to, to, to reference the book from the developmental stages of the star. That's just so cool. Thank mm. you. Thank you. 
Um, of course. But yeah, why would I make the same mistake? Well, A, because it's fun, and B, because I felt like <laughs> I said in advance that it was going to be a mistake. Like, I said up front <laughs> that I was going to fuck it up. And I think that buys you a little grace, you know? Like, and, and so yeah, I thought, yeah. okay, well, I'll, I'll present it like that, and then I'll and then I'll stumble into it. And because I didn't try to do the thing where I was like, New York, an angel on a mountain in the summer, or whatever. I decided to to stay small and specific and talk about alternate side of the street parking and bodega owners who know your name and whose family you get to know and. Um, the halal meat guys who I befriended when I lived in Queens, things like that. I kept it to the small and I hope the universal would take care of itself. And has anybody written about New York in a way? I mean, I'm, I'm sure they have, and I'm going to completely blank right now. Um, what have I read about New York that I've really liked? I can't call anything to memory right now, but I know that I've read things about New York that it, Oh, Oh my gosh. What am I talking about? The whole reason that I moved to New York is because of Edna St. Vincent Millay and Jack Kerouac's writings about New York. So Edna St. Vincent Millay, mm. her uh, poem called Recuardo, to remember, was one of the reasons I moved to New York. And that poem is, we were very tired, we were very merry, we had gone back and forth all night on the ferry, and you ate a peach and I ate a pear from a dozen of each we had bought somewhere. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. And something, something, something that rhymes with red. And we bought a morning paper that neither of us read, et cetera, et cetera. I won't do the whole thing for you. But it ends with, um, and we wept good morrow, mother, to a shawl-covered head. Oh, that that's the line. And we bought a morning paper, which neither of us read. We were very tired, very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. And she hailed, God bless you, children, for the peaches and pears. And we gave her all our money but our subway fares. And I read that when I was 11. And from that moment on until this very day, probably, I was like, <laughs> I want to be broke in New York City. I want to be poor in New York City. I want to give a shawl-covered head all of my money and travel back and forth on a ferry with some beautiful person. And I want to have adventures in New York City. And that's what brought me here. And, and honestly, that's what keeps me here. <laughs> there you go. That's that's one woman, at least, who wrote about New York City in a way that, that got another woman to move here. And would you say, I mean, I, I would reference the the line in the novel that says, you know, well, when does somebody become a New Yorker? And Adina says, never. Uh, do you think you're a New Yorker? Are you a New Yorker? I don't know. I don't, I truly don't know. I've been here for 20 years and I don't know. I But I can say that I feel most like a New Yorker when bad things happen and I watch New York band together. I feel very proud mm. to live here. So the pandemic, um, I moved here right after the blackout of um, 2003, and everyone banded together during that. So, and the tornado, uh, the um, the hurricanes. I I watch New Yorkers band together in a way that I don't think everyone gives them enough credit for, and that's when I feel most like mm -hmm. a New Yorker. Are you here, Alex? Do you live in New York City? No, I live in Montreal. <gasps> oh. 
back. So, oh my God, I love Montreal. Yeah. You're so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've born and raised here and, uh, yeah, I, I love it so much. It's so I wonderful. I almost asked you, I almost asked you at the beginning of the interview how you would like me to pronounce your name because I would naturally say Marie-Hélène Bertineau. <laughs> oh my God. So, Not to be weird, but can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're Marie-Hélène, but Marie-Hélène Bertineau is how you would say it here. We are such a disgrace down here. We are such a disgrace. <laughs> I've had professors who have who have insisted on the correct pronunciation. And I always love hearing it because I do. I mean, I my ancestors are Basque, and so I do know the correct pronunciation. Mm-hmm. But that's beautiful. But yeah, uh, we are so pedestrian down here. We just do that awful Marie Helene. <laughs> <laughs> Several times throughout Beautyland, I thought to myself, um, Adina would probably be diagnosed as neurodivergent if she had spoken to a doctor. Um, There's only one bit in the supernova portion of the novel that addresses this. And I, you know, highlighted, highlighted, highlighted it because I was waiting for it to be acknowledged. Um, After her book is published to fanfare, an elementary school teacher calls into a radio program discussing the book and says, Adina is autistic and quote, removed from society. She is a reporter. That's why her, that's why her transmissions are episodic matter of fact and don't have an overarching story like a novel or a miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just curious on your thoughts about this and whether or not you saw this character in this way as well. I would agree with you. I think that if she were to go to a doctor, she would probably be on the spectrum of neurodiversity. Yes. And <laughs> this is another meta moment because the story, the short story that Beautyland is based on, sometimes you break their hearts, sometimes they break yours. Is an, um, is an unnamed narrator reporting on human beings. And I went to a book group once with teachers of special ed. And one of those teachers said to me, do you know that your character is autistic? And mm-hmm. my, my mother worked with people with uh, profound physical disabilities. And so this wasn't an enormous surprise to me that she read it that way. And so we talked about it a little mm-hmm. and she said, you know, the reporting thing, um, the literalism, like things like that were, were, were signals to her. And I, I think that they still, they, I know that they still exist in beauty land. And so my opinion for whatever it's worth is that she would be on that spectrum. Um, but also I wanted to be really careful because I didn't want to limit her or box her into a diagnosis if it wasn't absolutely necessary to the narrative and also speculative work implies an equation so that if you say that a girl is like an alien you're also saying that to be neurodiverse means that you are also like an alien and so i just wanted to be really careful and respectful of those communities and leave it a little bit up to interpretation so that anyone who related to her could feel free to relate to her um, and not have like a particular diagnosis um, that may have been a little too distracting, but in my opinion, yes, I, I, I absolutely see that. And I would, and I would agree. I would also follow up. I mean, I know they're, they're not, you know, equatable, but would you qualify Beautyland as a queer text? I would. Yeah. I mean, she, mm-hmm. Adina also falls on the, again, like it's not, 
it's not made, well, actually it is kind of said in the book um, because I had to only present what she herself would know and ideas of queerness throughout her lifetime would have changed. For example, even the word queer is toward, you know, her middle age, whereas she grew up with, she probably would have grown up with the word gay. Um, And, but to be on the ACE spectrum, which is what I think Adina is, that would have also um, changed throughout her lifetime. But Adina and Tony are both queer characters. Adina to me is a queer character. The narrative itself Mm -hmm. is a queer text to me because there are three, at least three moments where she comes out as her authentic self. And that was very deliberate with me to me. To me, Adina is a queer character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question, Alex? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it totally does. I mean, I was specifically thinking, uh, you know, of exactly what you had brought up in the ace uh, subject of Adina's character. And I, I think there's one line as well where either Dominic or Tony says, you know, we're, we're all queer and asexuality is queer. Right. Like she, she's part of this community as well. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think it has all of the pieces that a queer narrative would have in that yeah. she's, she's othered. She mm-hmm. longs for a place of acceptance and and, a, and her family, you know, that she calls them, her relatives that she calls them. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely saw it, but, you know, yeah. I can queer anything if I try hard enough. Uh, yeah, and sometimes <laughs> you don't even have to try that hard. I'm like, everything, isn't everything queer? And I think, like, the conversation yeah. they have in Coney Island was almost like a literal conversation that I had at Coney Island with my friends when we were queering Bruce Springsteen. And I was like, oh, I want to put something like that in the book because she would, her friends at that moment in time would be having the conversation with what would to them have been a new word, queer, um, even though, you know, that yeah. word has been around since the 70s. Um, when I was growing up, the word was gay. So even like, it's just interesting how the nomenclature around certain things during her life, her lifetime changed. And I reflected that nomenclature too. But I mean, I identify as bisexual. I have chosen family. Um, she also has chosen family, which I think that she is living a queer lifestyle in that um, her choices, her vocation, who she is forces her to the outskirts of what is considered typical society. So I, I see it as a queer narrative in all different ways. There's a lot of conversations in Beautyland that discuss loneliness. Um, A great quote from later on in the novel, loneliness is a composite feeling, ironically unable to exist alone. It can contain anger, hunger, fear, jealousy. Adina had misidentified it for homesickness for her planet, but it also meant restlessness when one is not in the place they long for. Do you think it's better to sit in and experience loneliness as part of the human experience or is loneliness a thing we should strive to dispel hmm these questions are unbelievably good um well are you asking like do i particularly as marie is that about loneliness um what i would say that i've learned about loneliness is that you know like she writes about it's a composite feeling so it's normally made of other things 
I, I think I read this or someone very wise said this to me. I can't remember. And so anytime I have the feeling of loneliness, I ask myself, what is this feeling made of? And it, every time I do this, it turns out it is made of such wildly disparate things. So it could be like hunger, um, missing one specific person, frustration with myself that I missed yoga that morning, um, <laughs> pre-anxiety that I have to take the dogs for a walk and it's raining outside. And when you tease, when you work the tangle, so to speak, and you tease all of the different parts of loneliness out, many times the loneliness goes away. So I think, mm. no, no, I do not think it should be dispelled. I think like every other human emotion, it is instructive and it can be diagnostic. It can teach you so much about yourself. So in my best self, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm doing a good job on days where like I'm doing okay and I can look, I can turn toward it instead of running away from it, it normally opens up some really cool learning that that tells me more about myself. After Beautyland, do you think you are any closer to defining humanity? And could you do it in one word? Oh, I already did. And that's you don't have to tell me what the word is. Well, my word is the same word that how she defines it. Yeah, I I already did that. We can leave it at that. Totally. I I kind of like that, actually. I think we should. I think we should. Because the word is never revealed. The word is totally revealed. It's funny, though, because so far nobody has, 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 like, said the word to me. But to me, the word is is revealed (laughs) that's all i will say now i feel like i should just like throw a bath bomb down and just disappear like confetti of gold (laughs) (laughs) goodbye alex forever um i i i guess okay so if we're not doing one word then but i would ask (laughs) do you think you're any closer to defining humanity after writing yes Yes, and Beautyland is definitely a way in which I sought to define humanity most directly so far. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I think one of the words could be loud, and I think one of the words could be... Yeah. That's... Yeah. That's, to me, that's what the word she says is. Assigning qualities to the earth is to locate her and so like Mm -hmm. something containing pain and beauty along with a location is what i was thinking of that she would be thinking but i didn't really mean it to be a secret to be honest um but now Mm -hmm. but now that people don't seem to know what it is i i don't want to tell them because i want i'm hoping one day they're just like oh my god of course it's Um, So I I feel like now I owe it to them to let them ruminate on it. And also they might think of something better like loud. And that's good too. So as far as I'm concerned, it's up for interpretation. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Marie-Hélène Bertino, for your time today. Thank you, Alex. It was such a delight. We'll talk again, I hope. Thank you so much, Marie. Thank you. Have a good day, Alex.